right, so we're almost done. This episode, one more episode, and that'll be my tale, my story, the way it went down. Today we're going to discuss the investigation, and uh, you know it's pretty, uh, pretty sad the way things went down. Um, not surprising in some ways, surprising in other ways, but you just realize that as a victim of a sexual assault crime or rape or anything of that nature, you are putting your life, your private life, your sex life on the line from public for everybody to know. And you have to do that, and you have to be ready to have that torn to shreds because the key here to remember is it has to be provable evidence. Not that there's not evidence, but it has to be provable. Evidence has to be beyond a reasonable doubt because it's a criminal court. And that is very hard to do, which is why most people don't come forward. Because why would you want to put your private life and your public life and your sex life on display for people to judge you? So I decided after a few months of uh, working next to my attacker. And if you are unfamiliar with my story, I'm not going to bore you with repeating everything. It would take too long. It would be almost as boring as my four or five hour conversation with the police, which I will not bore you in this episode with all of that either. But I would go back and listen to the attack because the attack happened on July 23rd and I finally went to the police. I believe it was um, October 11th um, after weeks of working beside my attacker um, after telling my employer that they should do a... Uh, human resources and investigation, which they never did, and ultimately chose my attacker, and I was forced to resign. And after going to the police, when they finally had the balls to go to the police and tell them my story. This is also after 44 phone calls of trying to find somebody to do therapy, because I just had never been through this before. I had found, in Pittsburgh, PAR, which is a uh, rape crisis center 24-7. You can talk to somebody anonymously. Sign up for victims the same way, 24-7. It helped put my mind at ease, letting me know that I was not alone. That what I was feeling was normal. The fact that I couldn't remember things, that they were coming back different. Each time, you know, I would remember something, I might remember another detail. I might not remember the same detail. I remembered how violent they were. At any rate, so you go to the police. And this is your moment, you think to tell them your truth. And I preface this by saying I, I brought a legal advocate from PAR with me and he was absolutely amazing and helped. I think with his presence, the police did not destroy me as much as they did on the second time back. But they ask you all kinds of questions. Basically, the attack word for word. But as we're doing the attack, they're asking things that I don't feel that are important. Maybe that's just me because this happened to me. But they were asking me specifically the pin hold that I was put in and how I was pinned and, you know, why they think that happened and why my attacker never said anything. And I don't know, I'm not my attacker, but I do know that I was pinned. Um, they did question my best friend who was present. I remembered, and it happened to me being standing, and my best friend who could see it remembered me sitting. And for some reason that mattered. Not the fact that I was pinned, not the fact that my three of 
the lawyers that I talked to believed that that was my attacker testing his limits of what he needed to do later to pin me, as he said, to fuck me. But it was inconsistent. So it was not relevant. That happened a lot through the attack. I, I mentioned various things. Text messages. They asked if there were any sexual text messages. My answer is no. Apparently, I was wrong because when I think of a sexual text message, I think of, hey, that was great. You want to go out for dinner? Hey, you're a great kisser. Hey, that was awesome sex last night. But apparently, the police officers and most people have never worked in a restaurant environment where they are unfamiliar with the restaurant banter. But a restaurant in itself, the bar itself, and every restaurant employee is an HR nightmare. So when somebody texts you that they had, uh, they stayed at their girlfriend's last night and were cranky, and I reply in a text message, did you not get any or did you not get any time to rub one out that I sent in May? Remember the attack is July. That that's a sexual text message. So I didn't realize by some of the sexual text messages defined by the police, you know, hey, did you get tipped last night or just the tip? Being a sarcastic bartender, you know, fluent in sarcasm, wittiness and bitterness after being in this for so long, that my text messages, which they took his phone, my phone, were, I guess, in the eyes of the police, an invitation to let this occur, to that I was really inviting him and saying that I wanted you to fuck me, that I wanted you to pin me, that I wanted you to almost rape me. Because that's the impression I got during the interrogation or um, shall we say the cross-examination the next time after we met. So during the first time they just took my notes, talked about everything. I had saved my underwear for whatever reason that were ripped that night. Um, when they came up again, they, and they, I was not proud of them. You know, I'm a single guy and I don't buy some clothing as often. My socks have holes in them. My underwear has holes in them. And, um, I went in very detailed of how I was pinned to the bed and I couldn't see anything, feel anything or move. So the police said to me, this hole doesn't look big enough. Did you see him rip it? And I was like, how would I have seen him rip it? I couldn't see anything I couldn't move I was pinned I know that hole wasn't there or maybe it was and it wasn't as big as it was but as I told you the first time I remember hearing clothing rip so shot down there that didn't count anymore because I'm lying you know I really made this up because there was so much benefit of coming forward and putting my life on public display and trying to press charges for somebody who sexually assaulted me and tried to rape me because why what am I getting from it? There was no relationship. There was never going to be a relationship. There was a friendship that was betrayed. So again, not to go off on a rant, but it just blew my mind that the things that I felt were important, they shot down and ultimately were trying to clarify everything that they needed to do to get it to the district attorney, who was my only hope to go forward. But one thing that they did seem very concerned about the day I was there was that I mentioned, and I said this during the attack, that my attacker kept doing a fingering motion because he had a cat cam for his cat to watch him, but it was aimed at his bed. And he kept saying, pointing and fingering motion and going, Judy, full SD card, do you want to watch? Inviting me in my mind to watch a sex tape between him and some girl he fucked. 
that was the only thing the police seemed to be concerned about because that was recording without consent. So while I was there, they went and got a search warrant and they went and searched his home, my attacker, and took his phone, whatever else, I'm not sure. And I really don't know the result. At the end of my statement, they asked for my phone and they were gonna keep it three or four days, which turned into 10 and told me not to delete anything. You know, and again, I'm giving up something private again. Here's my phone, my life. Not only that, but now with this legalities, I need to call people. I don't have a phone. No landline. We're in the year 2023. Don't have a landline. But the phone calls I needed to make to attorneys to find out information, to try to set up appointments, to go face-to-face, because -face, at this point in time, I don't know what I need. I've never been in a situation like this. I don't know whether I need an attorney. And I, that's when they explain the process that the district attorney is technically my attorney. Who knew? One attorney that I did talk to, a friend, uh, she had mentioned to me that I might want to get an attorney because although the district attorney was my attorney, the district attorney was looking out for themselves, not me. I was their witness. I was their key to possibly prosecute and arrest and put somebody into jail. But they were going to use me as a vehicle to get there if the evidence was, again, beyond a reasonable doubt. There was questions about, apparently, it is harassment when you send four or five text messages to your sexual assailant and tell them that you don't like what has been done to you. And if you don't tell me why you did this, I'm going to go to the police. I threatened to go to the police. I threatened to tell the public and put it on Facebook and tell work and tell his girlfriend, still claiming to be straight at this point in time, although he's admitted bisexual, and tell them what he did to me. And he didn't feel comfortable. And I said I wasn't comfortable when he was on top of me, punching me, biting me, and slapping me. But apparently that's not relevant as a victim because apparently he is only alleged attacker. Because in his mind, through his statements, he said that I started this. This was me. I kissed him. Wrong answer. That I said he was sexy. That I this. That I changed my work schedule to be around him more. So when I finally met with an attorney and we convened with everything, I've had my schedule for four months, which showed that I actually made my schedule less and less to work with my attacker because I didn't want to work next to him anymore. And I had proof through my schedules that I worked less. And then I eventually quit and went down to one day a week when he wasn't working. So that was a lie. I had text messages that showed when he alleged there were sexual text messages, they were not there. My attorney got the banter. The police did not. They did not believe, and a jury would get that either. I mean, a text is a text. It can be taken out of context. You know, I work in an environment where it is accepted, expected, and tolerated, so most people do not, and I guess I forgot that. But I thought it was pretty obvious when somebody says to me, hey, are you off tonight? Do you want to hang out? Versus, 
hey, I'm afraid of you, as he told the cops, because he was threatening me and I feared for my life. He threatened me physically, he waited by my car, he was outside my house, and he told me he was going to make me disappear. So I don't understand how that equated to, hey, do you want to hang out? And then we did go out one night before the attack, and he picked up a check for $300. 22-year-old picked up a check for $300. I think the expectation was then, a week later the attack happened, that he expected me to put out for him for picking up such a high check. I don't know the answer to the questions. I'll never know the answers to the questions. And I'm now okay with that. But the police just, you know, after two and a half hours of being through every detail, every position, you know, did you touch his penis? Yes. Did you see his penis? No. Did you make him ejaculate? No. Um, are you sure? Yes. I know what that feels like. Trust me. I've been jerking off for years. I know what that feels like. I know there was no orgasm that happened on his part. If it did, it wasn't induced by me. When he bit me, when he slapped me, when he punched me, you know, those were real. The police twisted my terms when I told them that I was remembering how violent it was that I had tuned it out because out of sight, out of mind, I was going to go forward. They took that as I didn't remember anything, and then as I was remembering, I was remembering correctly and changing my story. They also said that the next day when I texted said assailant and said, you know, hey, are you working today? I hope you have make a good uh, have a good shift to make some money that he would never do that to his attacker. And I was like, well, I guess I missed the book on how I should handle this because I'm trying to pretend it didn't happen and this is what I would do if it didn't happen. And then they believed that the charm, even though he told me that he was lucky to have known me because I am sick, not terminal, but you know, do have a, another autoimmune disease and he was crying and cried when we had the discussion, was a gesture taken out of text and context that it was some sort of, I don't know, they never really said, they just said that that was a little weird. I thought, well, you know, I guess in some ways it was, but he looked broken. He told me he was mentally ill, and I felt like he had nobody else, and I didn't know how to feel, so I did what I would have done with any of my friends that had come to me and said, I have issues, because I don't want them to feel alone. I felt alone, and I felt broken. And I assumed, because he was miserable and sad almost every shift, that he felt the same. It didn't sound like he talked to anybody. So what was I supposed to do? I did what naturally felt right, which clearly contradicts the police guides getting raped for dummies, because I didn't follow any of those guidelines. By pretending to not have happened, to trying to move on as normal, to block it out and then remember, and, you know, even though they told me it was a PSD and normal, PTSD rather, and normal, that that was not normal. Like I said, when I went back after hearing, you know, having them have my phone for 10 days and they wanted to go over some things, and then it was a um, cross examination. Well, you said on this date this, and you said on this date this, and I. I realized at that point in time that even though I had all the proof to prove my schedules hadn't changed, that I had those, that I had receipts, that I had text messages, they took no notes. They didn't care. They truly didn't care. They had in their mind, because then they asked me if I still wanted to go forward and prosecute, and I said, well, he still did this. 
whatever fluff you're putting in between there, he still pinned me to the bed, ripped my shorts, and tried to shove his dick in my ass and fuck me. Like he said he was going to. He still slapped me. He still punched me. He still made me bleed. Do I still want to go over with it? Yeah, I want to take it to the level that we can. No arrest was ever made. There was a PFA issued. An emergency PFA, a retaliatory PFA, that I was told was not supposed to be allowed to happen. So we went to court and turned that into a civil agreement where I am now not allowed to have contact with him for two years. Fine by me, see ya, bye, hit the bricks, fuck off. And I was not allowed to work at my job where I had been for nine years. The irony behind all of that is this 22-year-old who had mentioned many numerous sexual encounters with girls, women, a few sexual encounters with men, and pretty much held me down and tried to force himself on me, now had to have everything run by his dad, who was with him, and his mom, to approve what they were going to allow me to do, which led me to believe, maybe I'm overthinking, that this wasn't the first time he'd done this because they wanted to hide something. He knew where to hit me, how to hit me, um, and how not to show anything. And, uh, you know, again, not going too much. If I start going to the investigation detail by detail, this would be a four-hour podcast, and I don't want to do that to anybody because it was absolutely boring. It was absolutely necessary, and not now. At this point in time, I look back and think I would never go to the police again with anything because they twisted everything told me I was wrong, told me that I shouldn't have done that, and that I harassed him. So, the investigation, in my mind, was kind of a joke. The PFA was kind of a joke. Um, here I am, the victim. Here I am, now having to prove that this really happened. My word versus his word. And put my, again, everything on display while he lied about everything, and I could... My lawyer and I could prove about 80% of what he was saying was wrong through scheduling and things of that nature, but then also told the judge that I had never ruled in the favor of the victim because he was the one to get the PFA and they always ruled in favor of the person with the PFA because he feared for his life. He feared that I was going to attack him. He feared that I was waiting by his car, none of which was true. But those lies are why people know that they can and do sexually assault people because there are no consequences. Only 1% of them are ever convicted and go to jail. Only 3% are ever actually arrested. It's a joke. You can go say this, you can go do this, and you can get away with it because it's up to me to prove that he did this without a reasonable doubt and without any pictures which could be altered or whatever, even the recording, which I may have been recorded, I don't know. They never answered the questions. They went, they talked to him, they talked to my friend, they told my friend that it mattered how he, I was sitting, they told my friend that said victim, or said assailant, said he ejaculated, I'm like, no, he didn't. Um, it was just a contradiction of everything, and when that went to the district attorney, Clearly, there was not anything that could be done within a reasonable doubt because they claim I couldn't even answer my own questions or back my own claims. 
So putting myself through the ringer was for no reason. And, you know, and I'm sure there are plenty of people that look back and think, why did I do that? And I do. I look, why did I do that? Because that made me feel worse. I feel like the police raped me because their investigation. They believed a 22-year-old who said I could make a phone call and make him and his family disappear. And that I said that in front of everybody. So I'm that stupid that I would say that in front of witnesses. So they never investigated. Supposedly they went to my job downtown, steakhouse, and they never investigated that I know, but supposedly they did. Even though I went in and said this person sexually assaulted me, I got no backing from my job. Nothing. Nothing. Even though the sexual harassment's come forward, me too, hanging all over the place. Nothing. So, again, if you've listened to the attack, that is what I went with. And they went down line by line and cross-examined everything. The one couple things that stand out for me, sorry, not the one, but a couple things that stand out for me. The day after the assault, the attack, uh, my assailant said he didn't remember anything past him crying. Miraculously, he remembered everything differently. I did it to him. He we had a conversation, so he twisted that to make himself look good because he didn't want to look bad in front of mommy and daddy because he can't do this. And the other thing was that he said nobody would believe me. And he was right. Nobody believed me. I told the truth, and I could tell during that cross-examination with police that I, they basically insinuated I ripped my own underwear. They basically insinuated that I made all this up, that I sent romantic text messages, but they couldn't show them to me on any of the text messages that they kept and printed that he was right. And it wasn't the first time he did it in my mind. So I was lucky to have a support staff, but it was a hard pill to swallow that when you went through all of this, to tell somebody your truth, to tell somebody that somebody else violated you in ways that you can't imagine, and then you had to come tell people, which relive it and relive it and relive it and relive it to every person that you needed to through the police, the legal, the therapist that I finally got and have that all shot to hell because it wasn't provable. And be just leads me to believe again he was right and I said that to the police. I said, you know, what do you want to do from here? And I said, well, nothing. He told me nobody was going to believe me. You proved that nobody believed me. And I'm sorry I wasted everybody's time. So that is how I leave this. Just for thought. If there are any questions, you can email. I just did not want to bore everybody again with going in line by line of everything. But I assure you that we had some evidence, great evidence on our side. They had some evidence on their side that were lies. Some that weren't because texts now are apparently misleading, misreading, and apparently, again, texts from May and June somehow equate to, I want to have sex with you in July and be forced to do so. Amazing when you look at the mind of the mentality of a millennial 22-year-old, and they got away with it. But I'm coming forward to discuss my story to make other people feel that they didn't.
I'm telling you. So he didn't get away with it. He's now going to have to, I'm sure I'm not saying his name, sure I'm not saying this, but any of you that know me will know the answers to those questions. But he will at some point in time screw up, and he will at some point in time get caught. And I did what I was supposed to do when I realized it wasn't my fault, because I felt guilty that it was. But when I realized it wasn't my fault and he needed to be held accountable, and he did this, and he was old enough, and now he's going to be a doctor, that's not, you know, many rapes waiting to happen. I don't know what is. So I hope that somebody has the courage to come forward or not go forward and realize it's still okay. Because you know the truth. You know what happened to you, no matter what anybody believes. My close group of friends know the truth. They know what happened to me. And they have made me feel like one of the strongest people in the world to talk about it, to go do what I did and try to press the charges, to talk about it now in a podcast and tell not just friends, but the world. Let people hear my story, ask questions, judge me. Takes a lot of courage, but not really because... I just want to make sure if I can make a difference and help somebody and not feel as lost or lonesome or out of it or question everything, then I made a difference.